Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Broadway Overanalyzed, a podcast that focuses not on the Broadway stage, but on the orchestra pit underneath. And every episode, we overanalyze a new Broadway score. We'll discuss the show's soundtrack, dissect the show's recurring themes, and dive into its style, structure, and influences. My name is Samuel Riddle, and I am joined once again by uh, my co-host, Lyd. Lid, how's it going? It's going great. How are you, Sam? I'm doing fine. So we uh, we've gone on a bit of a hiatus here. We have not recorded an episode since uh, September. <laughs> so uh, what you've been up to since September, Lid? It's been the holidays. So Thanksgiving, Christmas. We went to London. Uh, saw Wicked. Uh, on the West End, so that was pretty exciting, but glad to be back after the long break. Sorry, folks. Actually, speaking of, uh, shows, uh, since September, what have you, what have you seen? What have you gotten into recently? Since September, uh, well, I have seen Hades Town, which, uh, given the title of our podcast today, that seems a little bit relevant. Um... I, that might be it for, for right now. I've seen uh, Encanto, so I've gotten a little bit back into some Lin-Manuel Miranda, and we don't talk about Bruno, but what about you? Uh, yeah, I mean, like you said, we saw Wicked in London. We saw Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, at Liberty. That was good. Um, I, don't, I don't really know. I feel like that's probably it. Have you seen West Side Story yet? I have not, and I really want to, because the trailer looks so good. It's been, I have the, uh, I got the uh, soundtrack for Christmas on CD. Um, but yeah, I have not had a chance to see it yet, have you? I No, haven't seen it. That's weird. I've, I thought you would have seen it by now. I don't even know if it's still in theaters. <laughs> I know, well, let's go see it. Let's go see it together. <laughs> All right, sounds good. So we got sort of this game plan for 2022 that we're going to try to hold to here. Um, We're going to try to put out at least uh, six episodes this year uh, and try to sort of just stick to that schedule if we can. Uh, So we've got a a good list of shows that I'm pretty excited about um, and we're going to try to stick to that and get out those episodes uh, this year. All right, but uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's turn now to look at the show that is the focus of today's episode. It really is an epic musical that has been living it up on top of the (laughs) charts since it first made its way to Broadway in 2019. In this episode, Lydia, we raise our cups to Hadestown. I forgot all about your uh, little song references in the intro, so uh, probably for that. <laughs> Honestly, one of my favorite uh, parts of planning for the podcast is coming up with my uh, little intro for the show. It's actually a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> it surprises me every time. <laughs> uh, Lid, before we get into it, let's just talk uh, sort of generally. What are some of your 
first impressions of the show what what was your uh familiarity with it before we begin preparing for this podcast yeah it's definitely one of the newer shows we've done um which i think is maybe why it was very exciting to me i feel like Broadway in recent years has gone a lot to, I don't know, creating movie musicals and things like this and doing not original storylines. So I was very excited when Hades Town came to Broadway and we get kind of a completely original story, completely original score. Um, it just seems like a creative piece. Um, so I enjoy it in that sense and kind of saw it on the Tony Awards. Um, and then I actually got to see it at the Kennedy Center in DC uh, where I lived and that I hadn't really listened to the soundtrack before then um, and was was really impressed by the staging of the show. Enjoyed it a lot. Um, so yeah, what about you? Yeah, uh, same here. It's uh, I honestly hadn't... Uh, I, I Obviously, I knew that it existed and saw it on the Tonys. I was uh, <laughs> I was remembering, thinking about this, Lid. The, um, the time... that So this was the 2019 Tony Awards which was the year that I was in Maryland and you, oh, yeah. you came over to my <laughs> apartment in Maryland to yeah. watch the Tony Wars. That was, that. that was fun. So, <laughs> so anyway, yeah, but I haven't, yeah, but I haven't really, uh, I never really got into it. I was never really able to get into it. Um, but it's been, it's been really fun researching it. And there are definitely like a few songs that I'm really enjoying listening to now. Mm. Um, I, I, I definitely get what you say about how it's it's very something that's very new. It's really kind of Broadway's latest, like I guess, sort of like new original big hit. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, which uh, which it 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 feels like it's been on for a long time, but it really hasn't because it started in 2019, and then mm -hmm. the 2020 there really was no 2020 Broadway season, and there really right. was no 2021 Broadway season. Yeah, so it really is sort of the newest sort of thing on broadway and i think there are i do know like a few people who aren't like theater people by any means but they're they still at least know about the show which i think is kind of interesting mm -hmm. i was watching a i was watching a youtube video and i forget what it was but it was uh it was talking about so i don't know if this is actually true but it was talking about the re the most recent movie musicals mm -hmm. and the ones that have like oh, like over the past like decade, the ones that have done the best financially are like uh, Greatest Showman, Frozen. Um, so and and then the there's like Dear Evan Hansen and In the Heights and West Side Story have like not done really as mm -hmm. well. So yeah. it's kind of interesting that people are sort of drawn to this like to like new content. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that's why Hades Town has the hype that it has. Is that we we want new and creative stories, and so this is this is definitely bringing something new to the table. And even like you're talking about people that aren't that into Broadway, the fact that it's you know not your typical Broadway music musical, right. um, I think that that helps bring in kind of another audience to it as well. All right. Well, I thought we'd uh, switch things up a bit for this episode, and I kind of wanted to surprise you with something. <laughs> So we'll see uh, how you do with this. <laughs> okay. Uh, but before, I wanted to go ahead and give like a summary of the show, uh, sort of, before we get into talking about the composer and how it made its way to Broadway and then talking about the music. But I thought of a maybe a, a fun way to do this. 
I thought maybe I'm going to give you 45 seconds to as uh, to as like concisely and with as much detail as you can describe the show, but you only have 45 seconds to describe the I feel very confident in my abilities. This this is the first time I've actually have not written down my summary to like have by script. I just have it in my head. So Ah, we'll see how that goes. Tell me when. (laughs) All right, so you got 45 seconds, starting now. Hades Town is an ancient Greek myth told in apocalyptic Greek uh, Great Depression era. Um, It tells the love story of Orpheus and Eurydice, and Eurydice is uh, seduced by Hades to go to the underworld because she's starving. Also, Orpheus is writing a song, and uh, this is really stressful. Um, Basically, Orpheus goes down to find her, um, sings a song, sings a song to make uh, Hades basically softens the heart of Hades by talking about his own love with Persephone and relating it to Orpheus love to Eurydice and so Hades decides to let them go on the one condition that Orpheus cannot look back on their way out and because it's a tragedy as I said in the beginning you can guess what happens How I and do. that is time exactly wow I think I got everything in it was a little scattered there <laughs> I thought that was really good <laughs> alright thanks Lid uh, so I'll let you talk a little bit more can you tell us about the uh, composer of the show and about uh, sort of its history headed to Broadway. Yeah. Uh, do I have more than 45 seconds for this one? You may have more than 45 seconds, yes. Okay. I might need it. Um, so the composer of Hades Sound is Anais Mitchell, and she's a lot different than all the other composers that we've studied so far. Um, and I feel like I've said that about every single one. Every single composer we've studied kind of has had just such an interesting road to the musical um, that we've been talking about. Uh, But she did not start or even gain recognition first in the musical theater world. Anais Mitchell is a singer-songwriter of folk music. When she was 22, she won a new folk award at the Caraville Folk Festival. She's released over seven albums. She's toured with the indie folk band Bonnie Vare, been featured on a Big Red Machine album with Fleet Foxes, and she's been nominated for a Grammy Award for her American folk band, Bonnie Light Horseman. Mitchell has said that kind of being a writer of folk music, she has always had an interest in storytelling and reviving old stories and songs. In 2006, on the way to a gig, these lyrics popped into her head. Wait for me, I'm coming. In my garters and pearls, with what melody did you barter me from the wicked underworld? Don't know why those lyrics just popped into her head, but they gave birth to the idea of a musical about a Greek myth, and they laid the groundwork for the act one showstopper, Wait For Me. Aeneas then wrote the story as a song cycle. She called it a DIY theater project that first toured as a concert in a school bus. She produced a concept album with songs from the show featuring Justin Vernon of Bon Iver and singer-songwriter Annie DeFranco. Um, then Anais Mitchell goes on to see Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 on Broadway, and just enjoying this show so much, Mitchell approached the director, Rachel Chavkin, about turning Hades Town into a stage show. I thought this part was super interesting because when I was watching Hades Town at the Kennedy Center, I was drawing connections to Natasha and Pierre. There are so many similarities between just the style and the vibe of the show. Um, one thing that I was especially thinking about is in my theater classes when I was in school, we talked a lot about devised theater. Um, and this is kind of a way of theater making um, that has to do with a lot of like cl- collaboration. So what might happen is you might get 
kind of the bare bones outline of a script. Then all the actors, the writers come into the room and you're given, just for an example, you might be given like a rope and a ladder and you have to completely stage the show, come up with the script, everybody working on it together with just these simple pieces, just a rope and just a ladder. Um, so it's kind of built on collaboration, improvisation, and that's kind of the vibe. I don't think they are created in that way, but I think they are created to seem like there's a lot of collaboration from all the actors and the writers. Um, and it also kind of draws the audience in as another collaborator. Because they're so simple, the audience has to kind of use their imagination to create the world. The set is not creating the world for you. Yeah, that is pretty, that is interesting now that you uh, mention it. Um, there are now that I think about, it, there are like a ton of similarities between Hades Town and the Great Comet. Just like, just like the whole, the just like the just like how the show looks. I guess like the staging is all very similar. There's everyone sort of on the stage all the time. There's the musicians are on stage. There are some of the actors who are playing instruments on the stage. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and the, the actors lots of times are set pieces. The musicians are all on the stage at the same time. It's a circular set. I think the purpose of this, I mean, I don't know. I haven't done a lot of research into Rachel Chavkin, the director, as much as I have into the composer. But I think the point of this is to kind of create a more intimate theater feeling. I mean, like I said before, you're, you're asking the audience to kind of become a collaborator and use their imagination to kind of fill in the things that they're not really filling in. Um, so I think that's just kind of how Rachel Chavkin directs. And I think this was something that was a draw to, uh, Aeneas Mitchell when she saw the show. Um, so they produced another album. The pro show had a pre-Broadway run in New York, one in Edmonton, Canada, and then in London, and then eventually landed at the Walter Kerr Theater on Broadway in 2019. Um, and it did really well that season. I, again, there hasn't been that many original, um, shows on Broadway, so I think, Probably it didn't have too much competition in 2019, um, but it did win Best Musical, Best Score, Scenic Design, Lighting Design, Sound, and Direction, um, and some other awards for actors as well. Um, so it performed really well. Um, and then we'll, we'll kind of see how it does now that Broadway's opened back up. Um, it's come back to the stage, the Walter Kerr. So yeah, we'll see how it does. Yeah, it's really, it's really like nothing that we've ever seen before on Broadway. I don't think there's ever been like a folk music themed uh, musical ever on Broadway. So it's cool to see something sort of entirely new. And those are, those are very often the types of shows that are going to end up winning the Tony Awards. Right. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that even though Aeneas Mitchell doesn't come from a musical theater background. Um, she said she's kind of always been a fan of Les Mis. Uh, she really liked Hamilton, Natasha Pierre, of course. And one thing that those have in common is they're all kind of sung through. And so, you know, even though she doesn't have a huge musical theater background, that's kind of what she was drawn to. Right. This is also the first show we've done on this podcast that's been a, like a completely sung through uh, musical. So we've had a lot of uh, music <laughs> to look at. Um, and I feel like that's a pretty good segue to start talking a little bit about uh, the music of the show. Um, and there are uh, basically two genres of music throughout the score of Hades Town, which uh, uh, Aeneas and I heard you say Aeneas. Is it Aeneas or Aeneas? Uh, I think Aeneas. So apologies if I 
said it incorrectly. We'll, we'll say Aeneas from here on out. But anyway, and I, I watched an interview of Aeneas Mitchell where she herself said, these are the sort of the two basic genres uh, of music throughout the score of Hadestown. And those are uh, folk or, oh, here's, oh, here's another question. I've been uh, pondering this while researching. Do you say folk or folk? Oh my goodness. I think I normally say f- folk. <laughs> Was that one of the options? <laughs> without the L? Yeah, without the L. <laughs> anyway, okay, so you got folk music, uh, and then you've got this style of jazz that uh, Mitchell calls New Orleans style jazz, uh, which is cool because I honestly, I didn't know like until like a few weeks ago that there was so much of a jazz element uh, in this show. And I've kind of gotten into playing kind of like blues type music on the piano recently. And so it's kind of cool. It was kind of cool to hear uh, some of the jazz elements in this score as we've been listening to it. So let's take a look at uh, the folk music, folk, folk music, uh, and then also at uh, the this New Orleans style jazz. So we'll start off by looking at uh, folk. Um, so I have heard people classify music uh, in general. I'm going to do some like sort of music philosophy here. <laughs> uh, so I've, I've heard some people talk about music in general as having three basic categories. Um, and so the three categories are classical, uh, popular or contemporary, and then folk. So those are sort of the three main styles of music. And so with classical music, you've got something that's maybe a bit more sophisticated stylistically. It was written by some well-known composer a long time ago, and it stood uh, the test of time. It's still being played to and listened to. Maybe not by the masses, if that makes sense, but it's still listened to and appreciated in concert halls and in academia. Okay. Um, and then we have popular music, which is music that is very popular by the masses, but it is contemporary music. It's been written by a contemporary artist and it has not yet stood the test of time. And then finally, we have something called uh, folk music. And that's music that's sort of a combination of the two because it it has stood the test of time, like classical music has. Unlike classical music, it maybe isn't as sophisticated and it's uh, music that's been passed down over generations. And so it doesn't really have a known composer or anything. And it's sort of always sort of changing. Um, but it's, it's like popular music in that it's still sort of accessible and still sort of generally understood and listened to by a majority of people. And it sort of fits in with some sort of uh, cultural element in whatever region it was established. It's kind of interesting. I feel like what you just said, it kind of rides the balance between classical and pop. It stands the test of time, but it's also accessible to a, to a larger audience. That's interesting. Right. And very, very often what happens is the folk music sound is uh, going to end up inspiring the popular music sound or maybe the other way around. I don't know. <laughs> so every culture obviously has its own uh, flavor of folk music in the United States. That flavor is known as Americana music, which is kind of this whole conglomeration of 
gospel and bluegrass and rock and jazz. Um, and then even in America, you've got these sort of like subcultures. So you have Appalachian music and you have African-American music and you have the New Orleans style music. But we just sort of lump all of those together into one genre that we call Americana. Um, so maybe let's just go ahead and listen to some songs that might be considered folk. And uh, I think you'll you'll be able to hear pretty easily a little bit of the Hades Town sound in there when you listen. Um, and obviously, these tracks that we're going to listen to are just you know one group's take on a certain folk song because there's no really set way to perform it. It's just a song that's been passed along through generations. So the first song I'm going to play is uh, going to be sort of Appalachian style folk music. This is what I think uh, Mitchell is mostly influenced by. Uh, she she grew up in Vermont, I saw. Um, so sort of in the like New England Appalachian area. Um, so let's let's go ahead and give that a listen. Don't you think that that could be like in the Hades Town soundtrack, just like that track that I just played? Oh yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, it sounds really similar. Uh, let's listen to another one. Um, let's. Uh, so this is the next one I'm going to play is a little more. Uh, it's like Cajun music, so like the like Louisiana style folk music. I think it actually sounds pretty similar to the Appalachian style, maybe a little more uh, grungy. Okay, so we got this thing called folk music. Well, there was this movement in the 1990s where popular musicians wanted to take their music sound and they wanted to make it more like this traditional folk music. So you had like the, I, I think the reason maybe that this was because you had like the 60s and the 70s and the 80s where there was this huge emphasis on rock and roll and these electronic sounds and you had all the synthesizers in the 1980s and so in the 90s there was kind of a bit of a pushback from musicians uh, who are now labeled as indie folk so when you hear indie folk that's sort of like popular musicians who want their music to sound like folk music so according to the definitions that we gave it it's not exactly folk music it hasn't like stood the test of time it's not music that's been passed down from generations but it has kind of that same sound to it um, I'm going to play a track. This is, this is probably one of the most popular indie folk songs that's ever been produced by a group called Mumford and Son Mumford and Sons. It's called I Will Wait. You've probably heard it before.
know what we've seen And him at last Now in some Anyway, you hear how it's kind of sort of the same sound, but it's got sort of a more pop uh, sound to it. Right. Uh, so we have sort of this emergence of a new type of folk music. And I think that is what uh, Anais Mitchell is really influenced by in her songwriting. So this indie folk sound. Um, so I want to make sure we listen to a little bit. You mentioned the, the Hades Town concept album lid that she made. Uh, so let's just quickly listen to a segment from that concept album, which uh, really the concept album sounds even more folky than the Broadway recording. So let's just take a listen to one of those tracks so you can get an idea for what that sound uh, originally was like. there's there's something about the the indie folk sound that's just like it's like imperfect it's like the the singers aren't opening up their throats entirely while they're singing. It's just not very, it's not like as pure as what a Broadway audience would be used to. I think it's kind of interesting how even in, even in the soundtrack, even though it has that uh, folk sound, it's still sung by these, you know, trained voices. So it, it's, it's sort of like a little less folky than the concept album is just because the Broadway audiences are probably coming prepared to hear sort of a more, a classical sounding voice, I guess. Okay, so we've spent a, a good amount talking about folk music, um, and I'm just going to really quickly go through the second genre, which is this uh, New Orleans-style jazz. Uh, jazz, uh, jazz itself is really a type of folk music. It's just uh, um, a little more brass-heavy, um, maybe a bit of like a bouncier rhythm, a little more energetic. I think maybe that's why it works well with the Hades Town score because it, you know, it is in itself folk and it's maybe a little more energetic than that uh, acoustic uh, string sound folk. Um, so I, th I think what makes it New Orleans style is maybe that it's just a bit heavier or darker. There's a lot of the like trombone sound. Um, let's just take a listen to some New Orleans style jazz here. So there you go. Those are sort of the two basic styles of music, folk, and jazz. Really simple orchestra in this show to match with sort of the simplicity and the, I guess, the, like laid backness of the folk music. There are only seven music musicians. They're all on the stage. Some of them play multiple instruments, but the, the instruments that are played are piano, 
trombone and the trombonist also plays the glockenspiel, which is like this uh, xylophone uh, sort of instrument. And then there's drums, there's percussion, there's guitar, there's a double bass, a violin and a cello. All right, so now it's time to get into uh, the soundtrack. And like we said, there is a lot of music uh, in Town, And so we're not really going to be able to do the thing that we've done for the previous episodes where we walk through every single song. But I think we're going to try to sort of take the highlights of the show and kind of uh, go through those. Um, so there are 40 tracks on the original Broadway cast recording. It's actually perfectly balanced. So you have 20 tracks in act one and 20 tracks in act two. A lot of them are, there's a lot of like really short tracks in this. Um, so there, there's like a couple that are like under one minute long. I feel like that happens with a, a sung through musical. You have songs that are kind of just transition pieces that might be like a short snippet of dialogue. Um, but of course they're music and sung through. So they'll be on the cast recording. Right. I, I really like actually the sung through musicals because one of my favorite parts about uh, about Broadway music is like a lot of the like underscoring and that's most often not included on the cast recording. So I don't know. There's something really nice about like having the soundtrack and knowing like this is everything. Like I have all yeah. the music uh, right. there for me to listen to. Um, I will say... Since this is such a new uh, uh, new show, um, I was not able to access the the score for this one, so I I didn't have the the music for it. So that so unfortunately, that sort of made the research a little harder for me because I'm I feel like you're more of a you can just listen to it and pick up on a lot of stuff. I like to be able to just like see it in front of me, like the notes on the page. But anyway, there's also not a lot of. Um... There's also not a lot of, I guess, analysis done of it so far because it is new. I don't know about you. I had a little bit of a hard time finding people that had kind of studied the score or looked into it a lot uh, yeah, true. previous to us doing it. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, we're, we're one of the first, I guess. <laughs> well, trailblazers. <laughs> All right, well, let's get started with the uh, first track, the opening number, which is called Road to Hell. Uh, it's a cool little introductory song where Hermes, who sort of acts as the narrator of this show, introduces us to all of the characters, uh, the, the fates, Hades, Persephone, Orpheus, Eurydice. Why don't we go ahead and before we start talking about this, just listen to a little bit of the opening number. <laughs> Once upon a time there was a railroad line. Don't ask where, brother, don't ask where. It was the road to hell. It was hard times. It was a world of God. 
I really liked this opening in the show that I uh, didn't see, <laughs> but did see. Um, it was it was just like a lot of fun because uh, when I've when I've heard it just on the soundtrack before, it sounds like really simple. There's just like just the trombone playing at the beginning, and I was like, this is like sounds kind of like not as like energetic as it should be for an opening number. But then when I saw it uh, with like an audience there and like every time that a new character is introduced, like everyone claps, like everyone, all the characters get like a really good introduction. I just thought it was, I thought it was like a really cool, it was actually like a lot more energetic than I thought it was gonna be. Yeah, I think the soundtrack, I definitely enjoyed it more live than than listening to it, which I guess is obvious, but I think there there are lots of things added to it by by seeing it played out. Right. So this song, it sort of starts off with just that trombone, and it's got the voices, and there's like the humming sound from the ensemble. That's one of the cool things about this show is there is like a lot of, uh, I guess like mouth percussion i feel like that definitely has a name uh, uh but anyway there's like it so it'll, it starts off with the trombone and then it's got sort of the ensemble making noises and then the drums join in and then you can hear the piano join in and then the bass joins it so it's like the instruments like all build on each other and then at the end it's going you know it's all big and and pretty cool i think when you're talking about kind of the, the actors kind of making the train noises, I guess you'd say, the mms and the chugga-chuggas. Um, I think that adds to the the fact that the ensemble, all the actors are kind of storytellers, and you know that as an audience member coming in. Um, they're telling you the story, so the ensemble has multiple roles. They create the machinery, they create the train. Um, they are kind of set pieces in themselves, and so musically they're doing that as well, kind of setting the scene in that way. One of the things that I think is really unique about this uh, soundtrack, and it sort of goes into the uh, the whole like folk idea, is there's a lot. There's just like so much repetition. Uh, so that so that that like trombone riff that you hear at the very beginning, it it's it's like played through the entire song. Like it doesn't change. It's sung. It's it's playing through the verses and it's playing through the choruses and it's just. I I just feel like that's sort of how the way that the fo- that folk music is built. It's basically just like the same sort of thing being sung over and over again. And I think that's why the, the sh- yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. One thing. Sorry to break up your train of train of thought. Huh. Um, but one thing that I think. When you were talking about uh, folk music is, I I think it's, it leans really heavily on the lyrics. I feel like it's more, I've heard um, someone say about this show that uh, it might've been Patrick Page. He said, it's a, it's a poetry piece, not a prose piece. Um, And I think it's a good description of like what folk music is in a lot of ways too, that it kind of leans into the lyrics and the poetry, I think even more than the melody. Um, so I think there's a lot, maybe more in the lyrics of this score than there is maybe in the melody even. Um, but I think a big thing in poetry is repetition. And so you're seeing that kind of in the lyrics. There's so many places where the words and lines will kind of be re- repeated throughout. But it's interesting that you say kind of the trombone repeating there. That it's, it's doing that in the music too. Yeah, I, I know both of us, when we were talking about this uh, score a couple of days ago, or I think we've talked about it before, how it's just like, it's a little hard to sit down and listen to in one sitting. 
and I think maybe one of the reasons for that is just like how how repetitious it it can be at times. Uh, we do get in this song our first introduction to what is probably the biggest theme in the show, and it comes up a lot. In my notes, I have I called it Orpheus's theme. It could it's it's really just like the Hades Town theme. I feel like, um, but actually, why don't we go ahead and and take a listen to this theme as we hear it in Road to Hell. On the road to hell, there was a railroad line. And a poor boy working on a song. His mama was a friend of mine. And this boy was a musician on the railroad line, on the road to hell. You might say the boy was touched. Because he was touched by the gods themselves. Give it up. So it's sort of the song that's used as this, like, it's like this, this song that Orpheus, so it's like diegetic music, which is, we've talked about this before in the podcast, but it's music that is on the stage that all of the actors are able to hear, not the actors, but the characters are able to actually hear. And it's this song that Orpheus is working on to make spring come again. So it's got sort of this like supernatural ability to it, but it's this, it's this really simple melody, but it's kind of like, it's just got kind of this haunting sound to it. It's always sung like really high. And the guy who plays Orpheus, uh, shoot, what's his name? Reeve. Uh, I forget his last name. Reeve Carney. Reeve Carney uh, sings like falsetto in it almost every time. She, which sort of makes it sound even a little more haunting. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting theme. I think I've also heard it called the love theme. I think even by Aeneas, it's kind of this this theme that is kind of about Orpheus and Eurydice's love, but he's writing a song about Hades and Persephone's love. Um, so it's kind of connecting the two love stories that are kind of going on at the same time as well. Uh, let's so one of the cool things about this is the theme is used in a variety of ways with like different stuff going on underneath it to sort of change the mood of the theme. So I thought maybe we would listen to a few instances of ways that it's used uh, throughout the soundtrack. So we're going to jump ahead a little bit and let's first listen to it in a uh, wedding song, uh, which is not very far from this one in the soundtrack, but you're going to hear sort of this guitar backing uh, in this case. Another instance of the theme is in uh, the song that's called Chant. And so in this case, he's singing the theme. And then also underneath that, there's uh, this another one of those like repetitious type chants going on at the same time. Think of them. 
And then one of my favorite uses of this theme is it comes up a couple of times, but there's this really cool violin uh, riff that gets played while this while the theme is going on. It's in Wait For Me, and I think it's in Doubt Comes In. Um, so let's uh, take a listen to that. it's really cool how they how she uses the the theme in multiple multiple ways but it sort of has a different mood every time that it's played i just really love that violin theme it just sort of puts you on the, the edge of your seat yeah yeah anything else to add for this song lid there is a connection to natasha pierre and the great comet i think just in this opening number um and maybe it's a, a uh play to how Rachel Chavkin likes to introduce characters, but I think it's it's interesting that the opening number um, just introduces character takes time to introduce characters um, name by name, um, person by person before you get into the show. We are going to hear this song again uh, in the finale. Um, so it is going to sort of circle back around. Um, but I, we're going to wait and talk about the, the reprise of this song at the very end, because it is a, a pretty dramatic, uh, finale to the show. All right, so next we're going to talk about uh, there's sort of uh, this like opening scene uh, that has a number of songs that I, that really I think are some of the best songs in the soundtrack, um, and they are, yeah, and they are uh, uh, called "Any Way the Wind Blows," "Come Home with Me," and "Wedding Song," um, and so this is just sort of one big scene where Orpheus first meets uh, Eurydice. Um. Uh, so yeah, thoughts on these songs, Lid? I I agree with you. I think these are kind of three of the the best songs of the show, and I think they're great introductions to Orpheus and Eurydice as characters as well. Any way the wind blows is kind of a little bit harsher and quicker. Um, and I think that's a good introduction to kind of Eurydice's character. And then we kind of take a break when it comes to Come Home With Me. It's a little bit slower um, and a little bit more maybe melodic. There's more harmony in it. And then we go back to Wedding Song and we're back to Eurydice. Um, and in Wedding Song, we kind of get the reasons for that in the lyrics. Is Eurydice is uh, very practical. Um, she sees her needs in the world. She knows what she needs and she wants that um so we might call these three maybe an i want song for for both of the two characters um and then orpheus in wedding song we hear that he's kind of more of an idealist um and we even hear this hear this in a lot of the lyrics that uh 
Hermes is talking about him, where he says he, he sees the world as it could be, in spite of the way that it is. Um, so he, he wants to see how things are, and I think that's really well reflected in the melodies and even in the rhythms of the song. Um, just going from, anyway, the wind blows harsher and quicker to come home with me is kind of a rest in Orpheus' song, and then back to wedding song, which is back to kind of Eurydice's quick step again. I wanted to point out a little Easter egg from uh, Any Way the Wind Blows. Uh, but if we listen to a little bit of that song, you're going to hear, I'll go ahead and play the excerpt, but what you're going to, what you should try to listen for is there's going to be like these little piano kind of tinkles that are the same. It's the same piano that you're going to hear at the very end of the show, uh, right before that finale, after Orpheus has turned around, uh, and sort of doomed Eurydice back to Hades, um, but I I thought that was kind of interesting, so we can give that a, a listen, little foreshadowing in here. But he had a way with words and a rhythm and a rhyme, and he sang just like a bird up on a line. And it ain't because I'm kind, but his mama was a friend of mine, and I like to hear him sing and his way of seeing things. So I took him underneath my wing. So then if we listen to the beginning of the Road to Hell reprise, this is just after Orpheus has turned around. Um, and it's like a really sad moment, but you're going to hear those same same piano notes. Wow, I didn't realize... I thought there was an interesting foreshadowing in the lyrics as well, in any way the wind blows. Um, that at one point Eurydice says, people turn on you. And I was like, oh, that's that's harsh for the end. Wow. Huh. I didn't even notice that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Man. <laughs> but in the song as well, uh, the fates are introduced as kind of Eurydice's kind of followers. I think they kind of symbolize that good things are not to come for Eurydice. Uh, the fate is kind of like following her around, maybe symbolizing death in a way. Um, but they show up, I mean, again and again throughout the show, and we kind of hear their their signature song. I kind of love that she kind of made them into like, I think of them as like a girl band. <laughs> they're always harmonizing yeah. with each other. Um, so this, this, this is when they're introduced as well. Yeah, I kind of thought of them as like the Hades Town equivalent to the barbershop quartet and the music man <laughs> yeah yeah I, I, I made that connection as well <laughs> yeah but related to um just harmonies within these three songs um i love that in come home with me the chorus sings every line with orpheus um and i think this is a great way to introduce orpheus he's supposed to like be the most amazing singer in the world um, in this world, I guess. Um, and so I think it's really an interesting story device that the chorus harmonizes with him. So I think we're supposed to kind of think as the audience that Orpheus can kind of harmonize with himself. His voice sounds like it's harmonizing by itself. Um, so I thought that was, it was really cool that it doesn't happen throughout the show, but in this introduction to his character, the chorus sings every line with Orpheus. I, I love that you mentioned that because I was actually sort of – I was going to say something about that <laughs> um, uh, because I, actually I, I would say a lot of the times what's happening is there is no harmony. 
there's there's actually just Orpheus singing, and then there's uh, two other people singing, two or more other people singing the same melody, but in a different register. Um, so there will be so like Orpheus will be singing, and then there will be someone singing in falsetto, and it's a full octave above what he's singing, but the same melody, so there's no harmony. And then there's another person singing like even lower below him. Um, and I, th I think that's, that's an, that's a big, like indie folk kind of thing where you've got like these multiple voices. So I think it makes it e sound even more folky. I'll go ahead and play. This is from the, uh, concept album from the, the track that's called Epic. Um, but you'll hear it and you're like, I've, I, every time I hear it, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so indie folk sounding. King of Diamonds. King of Spades, Hades was king of the kingdom of dirt. Miners of mines, diggers of graves, they bowed down to Hades. Yeah, do you hear that? Yeah. It's it's actually something that you see a lot in pop music, uh, right? Like today. I like you hear it like Ed Sheeran. I know like does this a lot where he, he'll just like sing, but then also do like a backing track where he's singing the same melody, but like in his falsetto. I think it's interesting as far as just harmonies go again. Um, we kind of go anyway, the wind blows Eurydice come home with me, Orpheus wedding song back to Eurydice. And then at the very end um, they do sing together. It's kind of just like a mm, uh, riff, I guess. Um, and they do harmonize at the very end. Um, so we kind of hear them both, kind of their ideas separately and then we hear them kind of sing together at the very end of the song anything else for these uh for this opening number lid i wanted to point out some notable lyrics that i like um i think one of the one of the lyrics in wedding song that i really like uh is from orpheus all the rivers still sing along and they're gonna break their banks for us and with their gold be generous i thought that was just a pretty clever lyric. And then, like I mentioned in the first song, there's just a bunch of repetition in lyrics. And I love the wedding song times being what they are hard and getting harder all the time. Um, so it starts with time and it ends with time. Um, and it just, I think it plays to the circular nature of this show. The set is a circle. We'll see at the end that the story is much of a circle. So I think the re repeating lines and melodies play into that as well. River's gonna give us the wedding bands All right, let's move on to talk about um so there's these three songs. Uh, it's so hard to talk about these because there's just so many tracks and they all kind of blend together. Uh, but there's these three songs. And in the soundtrack, they're titled Epic 1, Epic 2, and Epic 3. And these are like the song, the, the songs that, or this is the song that Orpheus is trying to finish, uh, basically. This is the song that he's trying to write. Um, and it includes like that love theme um, in it at the end. And so every time we hear it, it sort of builds on itself a little longer as Orpheus is uh, building the song. Uh, why don't we go ahead and, and take a listen to uh, Epic, a little bit of Epic One here, just so we can get a feel for what this sounds like. King of Shadows, King 
of shades Hades was king of the underworld But he fell in love with a beautiful lady Who walked up above in her mother's green field He fell in love with Persephone was gathering flowers in the light of the sun. So, I, I don't know, Lid. There's something about this song that I'm not a huge fan of. I think it. I think honestly, it's kind of a boring song. Um, there's there's like not a ton to it. There's not much of a pattern to it. There's sort of this melody that's going all over the place. It's not really catchy. It's really slow. Um, I think I just feel like it's it often just kind of serves to slow the show down. How what are your thoughts on the epic songs? Yeah, there are parts of the melodies that I really like. One part that I like is uh, just when it repeats the melody when it goes uh, of the seed and the sickle and the lives of the people. I love that part where it kind of repeats that because it's not something you I guess expect to be repeated in that moment. So there are moments that I really like, but I do I do agree that. It, it does kind of slow down the pace and it's supposed to be that this song is the song that softens the heart of Hades. Um, and this is the song that he's working on basically the whole show. Um, so maybe you do kind of expect a little bit more from it maybe in a way. I think it has more of a rock feel to it. Maybe that's just kind of the the guitar that's being played by Orpheus in the show. Um, so what do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah, there's a little bit of uh, an electronic sound, and it's just like uh, it's just sort of like these single chords that are being played throughout the song on this uh, electronic guitar. Um, and so, yeah, I think that I think that does give it sort of a, a bit different of a of a sound than the previous ones that we've heard. I do think it's interesting the contrast between, and this is this song, I guess, is setting up the contrast between Orpheus and Hades, who we haven't really heard from yet. Um, but just, well, I remember when I went to see the show and just talking about how incredibly high Orpheus sings in all of his songs. It is, like, insane to think about how high he goes. But I think it's just a huge, it's to contrast his character with Hades, who has the lowest voice I think I've ever heard. Um, so I think it is helpful to add to the story that Orpheus is is singing very high and Hades is singing very low. Right. Speaking of Orpheus singing really high, in uh, the uh, Epic 3 song, which is in Act 2, sort of late in Act 2, we finally get to hear uh, that love theme that Orpheus sings in its entirety. Um, and so why don't we just go ahead and give that a listen? La, 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 la. There is a pretty cool uh, after Epic 3. There's a cool little uh, moment where 
uh, Hades and Persephone, I guess, dance together. And there's like this instrumental track. Uh, uh, so why don't we go ahead and give that a little bit of a listen here? The dance at the end, I think, is pretty rewarding because we've been listening to Orpheus working on this song for the entirety of the musical. Um, so when it gets, does get to this dance, which I think is the prettiest melody of all the kind of la-la-las, um, it is pretty rewarding to get to the point where he's finally finished his song and it's worked and it softened the heart of Hades. Um, so it is a pretty rewarding moment. We're going to move on now to uh, the sixth track in the cast recording, which is sort of our first, uh, for the first moment where we get to meet Persephone. The song is called Living It Up on Top. And in this song, she arrives back from the underworld. And if you know the Greek myth, whenever Persephone is uh, back on earth, she brings spring with her. Um, so I think uh, this song is maybe a little more jazzy it's got sort of that same repetition that i've talked about before basically the same piano riff throughout this entire thing underneath the verses underneath the choruses um and so let's why don't we go ahead and uh, give that piano riff a little bit of a listen here well it's like he said i'm an outdoor girl and you're late again right the king of the underworld The song kind of introduces uh, Persephone's character. Um, this is the first time we've kind of heard her, um, apart from just her introduction in the opening number. And I think it kind of introduces her as kind of the jazzy, kind of speakeasy sound that we hear throughout um, the New Orleans jazz, I guess, that you were talking about before. Um, a lot of the songs that Persephone is featured in have this same uh, sound. Um, and it provides a nice change of pace, too. Uh, I think, you know, especially after some of the slower epics, um, it's kind of a faster dance song. Um, I know uh, Aeneas talked about uh, adding it to provide contrast between the upper and lower worlds. Um, at one point in the kind of creation of the show, the upper world seemed just as sad as the lower world. So we needed a reason to want to be in the upper world. Um, so this song was kind of added to create some interest and fun in the upper world when Persephone returns. So in track eight, we get uh, what is probably the song that I was most familiar with from the soundtrack before uh, we started researching for this uh, podcast. And that is the song, All I've Ever Known. 
And this is sort of the show's love song between Orpheus and Eurydice. I really like this song. It's just like, I don't know, there's something about this one that's really groovy. It's got kind of this backing by a, a piano and a guitar. And there's this uh, tresio rhythm. We've talked about that before, which gives it kind of like a more modern swinging feel to it. And it's got, it's, it's a very bouncy song. So I think what it has is these like plucked cello or double bass uh, sounds to it that kind of lets it bounce along. So yeah, I really, really like this song. I think, I mean, like you're saying, it sound, it has these elements that make it sound more modern. I think this is maybe one of the most catchy and memorable songs from the show, just as far as like how the melody is. Um, and so I, I really enjoy this song as well. There's a, a really good cover of this song that I thought I would play for you guys here. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, Lydia playing uh, All I've Ever Known on the uh, guitar. Don't put that in. But got that. <laughs> I'm definitely leaving that in. Sounds really good. <laughs> I thought you were gonna play Renee Rapp and it's, I thought you were gonna play Renee Rapp and Antonio Cipriano. I was excited. Anyway. Oh, did they do that? I, I saw. I uh, actually watched a cover of Rachel Zegler doing "All I've Ever Known." It was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I kind of like uh, just sort of how simple the love story is between Orpheus and Eurydice. How do you feel about character development in this show, Lid? Because everything sort of happens pretty quickly for them. Uh, on a lot of shows, it would be like they wouldn't like get together until the very end, but it's kind of cool how like you see, you see how they meet and then they fall in love and then the rest of the story is sort of talking about them. How do you feel about how the characters are developed in Hadestown? I, I think it's interesting. This is something that I heard when we were researching West Side Story um, that the idea that like Romeo and Juliet aren't really developed. They're kind of just a stand in for young love and what they believe. You don't really know about them, but they're kind of just a way to, I guess, make a point. And um, I think the same about Orpheus and Eurydice. I don't really know much about their personalities, but they're kind of a stand in for young love and yeah what do you think about it i think that's an interesting point they're sort of symbolic maybe of something uh more big picture than us supposed to be relating to them in in their specific the specific details of their lives yeah and there's so much symbolism and metaphor throughout the show i think you're right i think that orpheus and eurydice are just kind of symbols in the show all right, that brings us to the ninth track, which is called Way Down Hades Town. It's another one of these uh, sort of ensemble songs. Uh, and what happens is Hades comes back up to Earth to, rece- to retrieve Persephone. Let's take a little listen to a little bit of this song. Follow that dollar for a long way down. Far away from the poorhouse door. You either get the hell or the Hades Town. Hound dog howling the whistle blow, train come a rolling 
baby, don't come back. We're going way down. This is one of the jazziest songs in the soundtrack, in my opinion. We get some pretty cool uh, jazzy instrumental breaks, which is a lot of fun. And like you said in the previous, there's another one of these sort of repetitive chants that gets repeated over and over again, which is the the way down Hades Town, way down under the ground chant that just gets sung over and over again. And it's another one of those. Sh- kind of short repeated choruses that that's sort of part of that folk sound that we hear uh, other other places in the score like in the chant song and in wait for me um so yeah there's a pretty show-stopping exit at the end of this uh scene when i saw it on tour uh they didn't have kind of the the drop in the middle of the stage that i know they have on broadway but at the end of this song oh, really? hades returns to collect persephone um and they just kind of drop through the middle of the stage and in at least the the Broadway show that I didn't watch but maybe watched um there was a standing ovation kind of at the end of this exit um which I think is a great end for this kind of very high energy song how did they do at the very end of the show when uh because after Orpheus turns around uh Eurydice gets lowered into that and I that was like pretty how did they do that on tour? They had a sliding door at the back. So when he turned around though and the lights come on, the door just kind of like slid over her, which I feel like was faster because when it's going down, you can still kind of like see her for a little bit. But on tour, it was kind of like the, the door just like slid shut and you were like, what? <laughs> Where'd she go? Like that sort of thing. So. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. But that was the same way that Hades and Persephone exited through that kind of sliding door. So it still had the same idea of she's returning to Hades Town. Hmm. Yeah, this is this is one of the first songs where we get to hear uh, the voice of Hades, who in this original Broadway cast is played by Patrick Page. I'm pretty sure he's still playing Hades on Broadway. But there he says like this one line where he says, I missed you <laughs> in his like really low voice. And when he, when he like said that line in the show that I didn't see, but did see it, it got like such a, such a good reaction from the crowd. Like all he had to say, was like those really low words and everyone was like, Oh my gosh, it's like such a deep low voice. That was kind of a cool moment. Yeah. His voice is very striking. I think I heard um in an interview from Aeneas that, um, as a female composer, which I think is the first female composer we've talked about, and there aren't too many female composers, I will say, on Broadway, at least up to this point, but she was saying how she kind of wrote the female parts, you know, in her key, something she could sing, so it's fairly easy for her to sing, and then when she got to the guy parts, and I think this is probably true of guy composers as well, that lots of times, you know, ladies' sopranos parts are like impossible to sing um she was saying you know i wrote the guy parts orpheus is incredibly high and hades is like incredibly low um just because she was kind of composing and did it was hoping that there might be someone out there that could hit these notes and um yeah patrick page really delivers
So in the 12th track, we get a song that's just called Chant. And this is sort of our introduction to the underground where Hades serves as this sort of like king over workers who are basically his slaves. I like to think of this as basically the equivalent to Les Mis's Look Down when you have all the prisoners, not only in what kind of like what's going on in the song, but even in the lyrics, uh, because the main chant in chant is this keep your head low. Uh, it's another one of those repeating choruses that we get over and over again. Uh, so a lot of similarities there with uh, Les Mis. Yeah, I think she's definitely referencing Les Mis in this. And it's it's a great like change, I guess, from the upper world to the lower world. It's kind of this work chant. And it has this like very steady rhythm, um, something that you might think workers might be able to work to if they're working on machinery, something that's um, doesn't have a lot of variation, but is kind of a steady rhythm. Um, and then it's another way, just like when we heard in the first song, how the the chorus kind of creates the machinery with the motions that they're doing, but also with the sounds that they're making, how they do the like ch sound at the end of the line. Um, I really like that. And I think it creates a really cool rhythm in the song. Yeah. One thing that I uh, dislike about this song, actually that, uh, I'm not a huge fan of throughout the score is there's a, there's just like a lot that goes on in this song and there's a lot of new melodies that are going on that don't really follow any specific chord progression. Uh, they don't or th there's there's nothing really being repeated here except for that one chant. So we talked about lame is when when you have like a sung through musical, very often you'll have like five or six kind of melodies that are kind of like your, these are our narrative melodies. So like you have like your major songs and then you'll have like five or six melodies that are like, these are just the melodies that we're going to use to tell the story. Um, and so like Les Mis has this a lot, uh, but that doesn't really exist in Hades town. So everything, everything that's being sung narratively to tell the story is kind of just like completely new. And I think that's something that really could have helped with the show being less uh, less slow or maybe a little harder to keep track of, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You do hear the La 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 melody again, uh, Orpheus's love theme. Um, and I think something that's really interesting about kind of bringing that back in the song at the end of Epic two, which is a song that comes right before this. Uh, one of the last lines is um, Orpheus sings and drown out the so sound of the song he once heard. We know that the song he once heard referring to Hades is this la 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 me melody. Um, and then in chant, that song begins to be drowned out. Um, so, what Orpheus just said, that the la-la-las will be drowned out, are being drowned out by the workers. Um, I think this is really important in the story, um, because in one of uh, Hades' lines in this song, he says to Persephone, everything I do, I do for you. So we get this idea that Hades has created this electric city, uh, these workers, for Persephone, so that she'll want to come back. He really doubts that, she, that Persephone is going to come back. Um, every year. So he's he's doing all these things to get her to come back. Um, and Orpheus, in a way, in this song, is doing a very similar thing. He's like, I'm going to write this song for Eurydice. I'm going to make Spring come back. But then he kind of forgets about her. 
Um, so he's, I think Hades and Persephone are supposed to be kind of like a future Orpheus and Eurydice. Orpheus is doing a very similar thing to Eurydice that Hades is doing to Persephone. Um, so in Orpheus kind of saying that the La La La's will be, were drowned out by Hades creating this town, um, his La La La's are also getting drowned out um, by the workers in Hades town. Yeah, that's, that's kind of interesting. I've always uh, thought of the song, or not of the song, I've always thought of the show as Hades Town is like the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, right? But I was listening to an interview of Aeneas Mitchell, and someone was asking her, like, what the show is about. And she was like, well, the show tells two love stories the story of Orpheus and Eurydice and the story of Hades and Persephone. I just thought that was kind of uh, not what I was expecting because she included the story of Hades and Persephone as uh, like just as important as the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. So yeah, it is kind of cool to see how those two are related. So right after the chant, we get uh, sort of, it's sort of like Hades's big song to shine. And it's a song called Hey Little Songbird. And he basically goes up to earth to, uh, seduce Eurydice into joining him in Hades town. And so it's just like this really low song, just so, sort of for him to show off his deep range. And it's like, it's not even really singing. It's just sort of him talking in this very, just sort of low, almost like vocal fry kind of, uh, way. But yeah, I didn't really have anything else to say on it. Did you Lynn? It does seem more like kind of spoken word poetry, maybe in a way, but this song reminded me so closely of another song that I'm going to play for you right now. Just a little something we have here in Louisiana, a little politics, don't worry. Sit down at my table, put your minds at ease. If you relax, it will enable me to do anything I please. I can read your future, I can change it around some too. I look deep into your heart and soul. You do have a soul, don't you, Lawrence? Make your wildest dreams come true. Is this from Princess and the Frog? Yeah. I thought that was just interesting because they're both kind of set in this, like, New Orleans jazz. And uh, Aeneas Mitchell and Rachel Chafkin even talked about Preservation Hall, being a, which is a live music venue in New Orleans, being a huge influence on kind of the set design as well. Um, and I just think it's interesting that these songs sound so similar. Um, it's it's a sound that we kind of associate with a villain, this low um, sound, but it's also a sound, this is kind of like Hades seducing Eurydice in this moment. Um, and in Princess and the Frog, Friends on the Other Side, which is the song I was just playing, um, we also hear about a villain kind of trying to seduce someone to, or maybe manipulate them to come to their side um, and and do what they want them to. So I think it's it's kind of just interesting that this is kind of what we associate this kind of low growling um, sound with. I always feel a little bad for guys who have bass voices because they're like, there's, there's like never any leads <laughs> who are like never any like good guy leads who have bass voices. It's always, they always have to play the bad guys. Yeah. For some reason it sounds more villainous, I guess. 
All right, we're going to talk briefly about the 15th track, which is called When the Chips Are Down. And this is a song sung by the Fates about, uh, this is sort of when Eurydice is trying to decide whether or not she should go down to Hades Town and join Hades there. Um, so we talked about the Fates a little bit, sort of like this uh, music man, barbershop quartet uh, uh, kind of characters. Um what are your what are your thoughts on uh, when the chips are down, Lid? I really like this song. I think I think it's a great change of pace in the show. I think the harmonies are amazing. One part that I really love um, is when they sing uh, "Cast Your Eyes to Heaven" and like the melody opens up. The harmonies are amazing, and then there's this quick switch where they get you get a knife in the back. It feels very musical theater to me. Um, that quick switch there. So I this is this is one of my favorite songs, honestly, on the score. I wanted to play one of my favorite parts of this song is actually uh, an instrumental break. And there, there are a lot of instrumental breaks in this score, which I really like where they just sort of highlight the uh, musicians who kind of get to jam out on their instruments. I'm guessing a lot of it is improvised, um, but let's go ahead and take a listen to this one little piano break in When the Chips Are Down. All right, so we have now made it to the 18th track of the Hadestown original Broadway cast recording. And this is really just like the meat of the whole score. This is a song called Wait For Me. And in this song, uh, in the first act, this is when Orpheus is leaving to save Eurydice from Hadestown. And then we get a really cool reprise in the second act uh, which is when Orpheus and Eurydice, and Eurydice head out on their journey back from Hades Town, and the reprise is basically the same length uh, as the first song. Uh, but it's really, it's really just like the big kind of showstopper. There aren't many showstoppers in this score, but this is one of those. You know, ends on like a big belt um, in Act Two, at least, and it's uh, it's just like the big ensemble uh, piece of the show. So it starts with uh, Hermes, who's kind of been the narrator throughout, and it kind of, it feels a little rap-like to me, but it might, spoken word poetry might be a better way to describe kind of how the song starts off. Yeah, and then we start hearing this uh, pretty simple repeating rhythm of quarter notes that's played over that repetitive chorus of uh, Wait For Me. We get the really cool violin riff with the uh, Orpheus slash love theme that we played earlier. Um, and then we get what's probably the best part of this song, which is this bridge, um, which has, uh, it, it's sort of like uh, Orpheus's and Eurydice in act two. It's like their chance to finally belt. Um, and it's just like really powerful, sort of, sort of like the Broadway stuff that you feel like you're kind of missing <laughs> with all of the, all the folk uh, music that's getting played. You want to go ahead and listen to uh, the ends of Wait For Me from Act 1 and Act 2? Wait for me I hear the walls repeating The falling of my feet And it sounds like drumming And I'm not alone I hear the rocks and stones Echoing my song 
And then here's the act two closer and uh, Eurydice is gonna sing that bridge now. I just love how everything up to this point is sort of like soft and it's kind of like that folk sort of, I don't know, just quiet, not really super energetic. And then this song, it, it just makes that this song all the more powerful. Yeah. And it's cool. You get kind of the workers come back with their work chant again. Um, and then in the first kind of wait for me um, song in, in act one, um, the chorus again is singing with Orpheus like they did in his intro song again. And it's, it's kind of related to, I guess, what's happening in the myth at this time. It's not fully explained um, in the show, but during this time in the myth, um, Orpheus is um, singing a song to uh, Cerberus, the kind of dog that is guarding the underworld, and he kind of puts the dog to sleep, um, which is kind of uh, said in, in lyrics that Hermes says, um, but his song is um, making a way into the underworld, um, so it's, it's really powerful. Another thing that I really love about this song is when the fates come back in. Um, they have these moments where they're kind of getting into Orpheus's head, saying, "Who are you? Um, why are you? What are you doing here?" Things like this. There's a line that Hermes says in the beginning um, that the fates kind of sound like voices in the back of your head, and I think the way the music is written does a really good job of expressing that. Um, the fates kind of echo each other um, and their their lines kind of the melody kind of trails off at the end um, so it really does sound like their voices kind of in the back of Orpheus's head um, and I think the music does a really good job of expressing that where do you think you're going who are you why are you all alone who do you think you are who are you to think that you can walk a road that no one ever walked before. This is a pretty show-stopping number. Um, just being at the show, it was really incredible that we've kind of been in the upper world for a lot of the show, and a lot of the set pieces don't change throughout the show. We're kind of looking at the same set. But in this song, um, there are lanterns swinging back and forth, and Aeneas uh, talked about this song, how the wait for me, I'm coming for, I'm, I'm coming, kind of has a backward forward movement in the melody. And so as you're kind of listening to that, the lanterns are always also kind of like moving backwards and forwards. The choreography is insane because you think he's going to get hit by the lanterns, but they're kind of going in around him. And then the stage kind of opens up and there are these bright lights. It gets bigger. You didn't think the like stage could hold that much, but it expands and gets bigger and you see a different set for the first time um in the show so it's pretty show-stopping i think there was like a standing ovation in the uh show that i saw uh when i saw it um the audience didn't really react to so so the reprise ends on like eurydice singing like this like high belt note but there's no like button on the end of the song um and so it it just sort of ends and like the audience that 
for the show that I saw, like they didn't really know how to react. It was like sort of some silence and then like a few people clapped and <laughs> it was just kind of awkward. Huh. That's interesting. I can't, I can't remember what happened in the show that I saw, but yeah, but again, like these songs kind of flow right into one another. So sometimes it is kind of hard to tell when they're ending, but I do like the reprise a lot. I think Orpheus and Eurydice singing together, they're not really even singing harmony, but I, I think the the slower uh, melody of Wait For Me and when they're singing together is really beautiful. So when I even saw the show, I kind of liked the reprise more than uh, the original song in Act 1. All right, well, we'll go ahead and flow right into the next song, which is uh, the 19th track. And this is the uh, Act 1 closer. Uh, it's called Why We Build the Wall. Uh, and we can go ahead and uh, just listen to a little bit of that. My children, my children, why do we build the wall? Why do we build the wall? We build the wall to keep us free. That's why we build the wall. We build the wall to keep us free. How does the wall keep us free? My children, my children, how does the wall keep us free? I think this was such an interesting choice for a song to put at the end of Act 1 because we just had Wait For Me, which is like like we've said, this kind of big showstopper ends with these big belts. But then we get like this one extra song, Why We Build The Wall. Do you think it, does it feel kind of out of place to you, Lid? I, I think Wait For Me would have been an amazing Act 1 closer and you kind of would have gone off on a high and kind of a cliffhanger um, at the end of Act 1. So... I don't know, maybe this could have been like an act two opener, but it also doesn't seem like an act two opener. So yeah, I kind of wish this had been before Wait For Me. Right. So basically what this song does is it just sort of gives us some insight into what life is going to be like in Hadestown, what, it, what it's going to be like for Eurydice uh, down there, why Orpheus needs to come and save her. And the song is so incredibly simple. It, there is absolutely no harmony. And this is like, this is a long song. It's a four minute long song. And we never hear any harmony at all, even though the entire ensemble is singing. Um, it's all done in unison, nothing uh, fancy about it, which I think is very symbolic because the people who are singing it are these workers who have just like been brainwashed basically um, and just have, yeah, it, everything done in complete uniformity yeah i think them just singing with no harmony like you said it's like they all the workers just have one voice one mind even like the big final note which is an act one ending note no harmony on it um which even there's there's lines about um kind of the workers not being able like having like glassy-eyed stares and not being able to react to things i think it's it's a really well done, I think, like propaganda song. Um, the idea that Hades is just kind of like beating this message uh, into the workers again and again. Like it's, it sounds like something they've sung many times over and over. And the repetition in it too is, is it just repeats on itself. It's, I've heard it described as kind of a cumulative song. Like think maybe 
prologue from uh, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, um, it kind of builds on itself um, and kind of repeats previous parts as it builds. So we're done with Act 1. That brings us to the Act 2 opener, which is a song called Our Lady of the Underground. Uh, and this is just sort of, uh, it's, it's one of those classic Act 2 openers where it doesn't really do any uh, plot movement for us, but it just sort of gets the audience back into the environment of the show. No real advancement of the plot here. Uh, Act 2, I know we've talked about this before, Lid, but... Act two of Hadestown, in my opinion, is very weak. Uh, there uh, are lots of songs in it that all sound the same, especially in like the first half, maybe even two thirds of the second act. They're just all sort of these slow songs. They really just have the same tempo. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. How do you feel about Act two? Yeah, Act 1 has kind of living it up on top and way down Town that kind of change up the pace. Um, whereas Act 2, and we've talked about this before, where lots of times Act 2, it seems like people realize in Act 2 that they have a lot of story to finish out. And I just I just feel like Town, it's very poetic and it's very symbolic. And I think a lot of the songs are stuck heavily in metaphor. Um, and so there's just dense, dense metaphor. I think you could look into the lyrics forever finding finding new things, but it's just, it feels dense um, when you're listening to it, I guess, all the way through together. I do really enjoy this Act uh, 2 opener, though. It This is probably the jazziest song in the whole score. Um, it really just sounds like you're in like a jazz club in uh, in New Orleans. There's It's just like a lot of the... Uh, piano and bass emphasis, this jazz rhythm, and you've got the like drum beat that's like the cymbals and the drum brushes that just make it sound super, super jazzy. Uh, one of my favorite parts about this song is that we get a little shout out for the musicians, uh, which is really cool. I always, <laughs> always like it when they acknowledge the musicians. Why don't we go ahead and uh, just listen to that? I just think that's really cool, uh, and those are the actual names of the musicians who played for the opening cast on Broadway, and I assume they change the names up with every production that they do. I don't know. Could you tell when you saw the tour? No, I can't. I can't. I can't remember, but I, I think it does kind of speak to kind of maybe what we talked about before about the the actors like setting themselves up as storytellers because it kind of take you out of the world for a little bit and and calling the band members by their actual names i think is is really cool that brings us to the 23rd track which is a song called flowers and this is uh sort of a solo for eurydice while she's 
So she's in Hades Town at this point. She's sort of signed her life away to work uh, for Hades um, in in the under in the underworld, and uh, she's just sort of reflecting in this song on what her life was like outside of Hades Town, and sort of maybe realizing that she made a pretty bad mistake. I don't really have a ton to say about this song, Lid. It's it's another one of those. I think it's a good representation of what the rest of Act Two is like because it's it's just like a slow and yet it's still a long song. It doesn't really do much to advance the plot. I feel like they just wanted to make a solo for Eurydice, and I don't know. I, I, there's just not much appeal uh, for it for me. I actually, I actually kind of like it. I, I, I'm, but I'm like a ballad person, like. The Our Lady of the Underground and then songs like that, I, I enjoy them when I'm watching them, but the ones I want to listen to are like the deeper ballad ones, you know? Um, I also think this is the most, to me, it's the most like folk song. Like, I feel like I could hear this like on Spotify from like a folk artist. Um, it has so much metaphor in it. Um, I think there's, there's pretty riffs. I also really like um, when she is trying to remember her life before and she kind of has glimpses of remembering Orpheus. Um, I feel like the, the, the melody gets a little bit more maybe open and, and major. Um, and there's this line where she says, I remember flowers, fields of flowers. And there's kind of a repeating melody there, which to me speaks of like trying to, to remember something um, just in kind of repeating that melody. Um, but then when she remembers that she left him behind, it kind of goes back to that more uh, tense melody. Um, I think it's pretty, but you're right. It is. It is slow and maybe a little long. Okay, so we're gonna skip a number of tracks here uh, and move on to uh, the 28th track, which is a song called "If It's True." Uh, so at this point, Orpheus has made it down into Hades Town. Uh, he's trying to figure out how to free Eurydice. And he's just sort of like despairing. The The fates have just sort of told him like, this isn't going to work. Um, and so he's just sort of despairing. But unbeknownst to him, he's actually heard by the uh, workers um, there and sort of sparks this rebellion in them. This is, you know, uh, I, I actually didn't want to cover this song in the podcast, but Lid was like, oh, it's like kind of an important song for the show. I feel like we should talk about it. So here I am. But the, the more that I listened to it, the more that I kind of enjoyed it. There's, uh, there's a really cool part where the workers start to sing um, using these like really pretty harmonies, which I think is so significant now that I think about it. Uh, after we've heard a song like Why We Build the Wall, we're all, they're all singing in unison. And then they come out and sing these like really pretty harmonies. I've, been, I've kind of been playing this song a lot recently, actually. Uh, so let's just uh, give that section of If It's True a listen. And the world has heard him. If it's true what they say. With their hammer swinging. What's the purpose of a man? And they quit their working. Turn his eyes away when well, they heard him singing. Just to throw up both his hands. No hammer swinging. What's the use of his backbone? No pickaxe ring. If he never stands upright. And they stood and listened. If he turns his back on everyone. To the poor boys sing. That he could have stood 
I just think those are so pretty. Yeah, and it's less like work chanty um, than we've heard from them before. So I think it is true that they're, you know, starting to think with their own mind again um, after hearing Orpheus sing. Um, and we heard a little bit, there's a lot of language in the lyrics of, of turning. There's even one lyric in this song where Orpheus says, what's the purpose of a man if he turns his back on everyone? Again, with just the constant foreshadowing of Orpheus's turning at the end. Hmm. Okay, so now we're going to jump all the way from the 28th track, uh, if it's true. Um, and what happens after that is... Uh, Hades finally gives Orpheus the chance to sing, uh, his song, um, and Orpheus is going to sing it in its entirety. We've already heard it in Epic three, uh, and Hades is really touched by that. Um, and he decides, uh, that he has to let Orpheus and Eurydice go, but the fates convince him that, uh, if he does that, then he's going to appear very weak before the workers. So instead of doing that, he decides uh, to let them go on one condition. And that condition is that Orpheus has to walk back uh, in front of Eurydice and he cannot turn around to look to her. Um, and if he turns around, she's going to be stuck in Hades Town forever. Okay. Uh, before we get to that point, there is a short song called uh, Promises. That's a, a pretty good track uh, in this cast recording where uh, we kind of get Hades and Persephone realizing that uh, they do in fact love each other, uh, even though it's been a little rocky for them. And we also hear that sort of echoed by Orpheus and Eurydice. So kind of more of this mirroring the two uh, love stories. Yeah, it, it kind of um, is them... I guess, rededicating their love to one another. There are um, lyrics of, I do, I do, I do, and I will um, in the song. Um, it's also kind of a reprise of Any Way the Wind Blows, so we're kind of brought back to the beginning of their relationship. Um, and it also brings back lyrics from a Wedding Song, but whereas Wedding Song um, was a little bit, Eurydice was kind of unsure, but Orpheus was hopeful. This Wedding Song is very hopeful, and there's really pretty harmonies um, throughout this song. So then we make it uh, to the 38th track, which is a song called Doubt Comes In. And this is when Orpheus and Eurydice are on uh, their way back. And it's just a super tense song. At the beginning of this song, we hear this uh, drum beat that's kind of like a, it, it's just like a heartbeat. It's like the boom, boom, boom. And we can go ahead and, and get a, get it. Uh, a listen to that um, and it's just it's so tense So yeah, it's just it's just super tense. I love that. Yeah, it builds the tension super well, um, and all the lines kind of end kind of 
dissonant. Um, it's a little bit unsettling. Again, there's repeating lyrics. And like we said before, when the fates kind of had their moment in Wait For Me, it's similar to this, where we, we, we kind of take the fates' words as kind of words that are coming through Orpheus's head. Um, I think also the, the lyrics are very telling in this song. Um, Hades speaks of doubt comes in in the song, um, His Kiss the Riot. Um, Hades is kind of constantly doubting in the story, I guess, if Persephone will come back every year. Um, so he's kind of dropping those seeds of doubt inside Orpheus's head um, for his own love for uh, Eurydice. We do hear that Orpheus love theme again, and it's we're going to hear it once again with that violin riff that we heard from Wait For Me. So this, is, this song is actually very similar to Wait For Me. It's almost like a second reprise for that. Um, but uh, again, I just love that uh, violin riff that we hear uh, on top of that. That's one thing I honestly think about Act 2 is Act 1 feels very unified because I feel like the the la-la-las, um, they're almost in every, not every single song, but they're in the majority of the songs in Act 1, so it feels very unified. In Act 2, there's actually a surprising like lack of the la-la-las compared to Act 1. Um, so I think that's another reason that I, I really love Doubt Comes In is we, we finally kind of hear this melody again as he's trying to convince himself to kind of keep going you have anything else to say about this song yeah one thing i like about this song as well is um again it sounds super dissonant um but there's a part where uh eurydice um is kind of reassuring him and she sings comes right before the spring and that sounds like a very like the melody sounds not not dissonant it definitely resolves itself um and it it feels very major to me and then um the last she sings it twice so she repeats it the last time that she sings it she sings comes right before and it's about to resolve and we're used to this line resolving because we've heard it before but right after she says before and before she can say the spring um that is when literally all the lights come on and orpheus turns around and there's a super tense moment uh, when he turns around and the audience is like, what? what? He was almost there. He almost made it. it sounded like the song was going to end. And then it's just so shocking. It It is such a devastating moment for the whole audience. It, it, it's insane how I love how they just use like the silence uh, in the audience or just in the theater to just really like show like how tense of a moment this is. And then you get this like trembling violin and there's some sort of sound that I it's just sort of like a noise sound that I think is maybe pre-recorded or something um but it's just it's it's devastating let's listen to the very end of doubt comes in It's really good. It's really good. It's it's super effective. Like I remember like listening to to people's reactions of the show and they were like, 
yeah, I cried during like, I don't know, wait for me, or I cried during this part, but this this part, like when he turns around, no one's crying because they're too shocked. They're like, what what but they almost made it. You're like, what the heck? Like completely not expecting it. And it's it's not really meant to be sad. You're just kind of sitting there like, because I think what it is is that everyone knows it's going to happen. Literally some of the first lines of this show are, it's a tragedy. We know it's coming. But it's still just like, when it actually happens, you're like, shocked. You're in just in shock. Yeah, it, it's so interesting. In the, in the finale, which we're about to talk about, they talk about how like, we're going to sing it again. Maybe, be, maybe the reason we're okay with singing it again is because maybe this time it's going to turn out all right. So maybe like the audience is like still holding on to like maybe it's not actually going to turn out bad or something. And then it happens just so quickly and you're like, ah, oh, sad. Yeah, I think I think that's a huge and I'll talk about it now. I know this is a big theme of the finale, but because you said that, I think that's kind of a huge theme of the show. The show is about storytelling because it's an old song, as Hermes says, and it's been told many times throughout history. It's an ancient Greek myth, but we still know the story and we still hear about it. Um, and Hermes also talks a lot about Orpheus being the kind of person that sees the world for how it could be in spite of the way that it is. And I think Hermes is drawing a line from Orpheus being that way to the audience being that way. We watch this story because we like to see the world for how it could be and not the way that it is. So we keep watching this story because maybe this time, I think there's a line that even says, as if it might turn out this time. Um, so as an audience member, we're like Orpheus. We like to see the world as the way that it could be. We, we see the story as the way that it could be. What if he didn't turn around? Um, what if this time when we watch it, is he, it's, he's not going to turn around? That's why we keep just coming coming back to the story because we think of the way that it could be in spite of the way that it is, to quote Hermes. So that finale that Lydia has already alluded to is just a reprise of the opening number. It's called Road to Hell. Um, and as Lyd has already mentioned, it just sort of brings the whole show uh, full circle. The beginning of that song, uh, we hear those piano flares that we've already listened to that are the same as the ones that we heard in Any Way the Wind Blows. And it's just, it starts off so painfully slow. It's just, it's a very quiet, no real musical accompaniment, but Hermes just sort of repeats those lines in just like a very sad, slow way, which is such a huge contrast to what we heard in that energetic opening um, at the very beginning, at the, at the top of the show. Um, but what's cool is, you know, it starts off really sad, really slowly, and then like over time, the orchestra starts to build um, and you know, they're, they're singing all the, all the songs that you heard in the opening number, but you're sort of understanding them in a different light. And there's kind of a, a hopeful sound to the end of this. I was just thinking about how hopefully it ended. And I, I even though the, the reprise is sung so much slower, the harmonies and the, just the way that I guess that it's sung in the musical accompaniment, it, it does kind of have a hopeful sound. And then I was just now I was thinking about to when I saw the show, I felt like hope, I guess, in like in my heart. I don't know. This is getting deep. Um, but it's weird because it's so sad. But somehow 
because it's it's cyclical. I love how this ends. Like I love that like it start it ends just the way that it starts. It's like it's just like well we're gonna tell it again. We're we're just starting right at where we begin. We're gonna introduce Orpheus again. We're gonna introduce or Eurydice again. She like comes down and you're like oh hey she's here again. Um, it's just it's so crazy how it you know you know how it ends but when it starts again you are full of hope even though you know how it ends it's crazy yeah it's it's really clever let's listen to uh the very end of uh road to hell reprise There is actually one song that's sung uh, after this. It's on the soundtrack. It's the 40th track. Uh, and it's a song called uh, We Raise Our Cups. And it's a song that they do after the bows have been done. Uh, I think it was kind of kind of an interesting choice to do this. Because you, as you said, the, the show ends pretty like hopeful and same, same. It's almost the same as like the act one close, actually. Because you end with like this really energetic wait for me. But then after that, they're like, oh, we'll add this extra Why We Build the Wall song, which it seems a little less like a act one closer. And then it's like act two after the bows are done, they're going to sing this really slow, kind of simple song. So I don't I don't know if I'm a huge fan of uh, the We Raise Our Cups song. I kind of wish they had just ended it with the bows. Uh, what do you think, Lyd? Yeah, it, it kind of brings down the mood a little bit after you're kind of on the high of the end. I think, I mean, when I was watching it again, I, I think it's another way to kind of bring the audience in because they kind of like toast to the audience and then they all kind of drink together. Um, so I think it's another way to kind of like incorporate the audience, but I, I could do without it, I think. All right, well, we have made it all the way through the soundtrack of Hades Town. This was a tough. This was a tough one to do. Uh, there's a lot of music in here. I definitely don't think that we did this whole soundtrack justice because there's just so much to think about. Um, and uh, we, I, I, I don't know about you exactly, Lid, but I know like the first time I listened uh, all the way through the soundtrack was like a few days ago. Um, and it's been it's been a lot of fun. There's there's definitely some songs in here that I've heard that will be added to my you know like Broadway playlist <laughs> that I'll uh, that I'll have uh, to sing later on. <laughs> so uh, before we close this episode out, uh, a couple questions for you, Lid. What is your favorite song in the soundtrack? I don't think we'll do least favorite since just since there's so many tracks in here uh, <laughs> um so go ahead and uh what's your favorite song in this one i i think my favorite song is still all i've ever known that was the first song i heard from the score um it's a song that like kind of drew me into hades town i still think it's the most memorable song 
uh, wait for me is pretty great after seeing the show like seeing the show live probably wait for me but as far as like ones that i'll listen to again there's something so simple about all i've ever known and i love the repeating lyrics i think that's that's probably my favorite i like doubt comes in as well but what about you yeah, I think as far as I, I, I like Doubt Comes In, but definitely just as like a song that I would just want to listen to sort of regularly. I think, yeah, All I've Ever Known is is really good. I would say probably The Wait For Me reprise is my favorite uh, in the soundtrack. Although when I've been listening to the soundtrack, the ones that I'm sort of playing over and over again are like the like Any Way The Wind Blows, Come Home With Me wedding song. Those are great. Yeah. Yeah. All right, what about if you had to rate, rate this show or this soundtrack on a scale of 1 to 10, 1's the worst, 10 is the best, what rating would you give this one? This is really tough for me because I like the show as an idea. I think it's clever. I love the way that they storytell in it. Um, I love that it has a huge focus on lyrics. As far as like me listening to it over and over again it's so dense that it sometimes gets a little bit hard there's some songs i love on it some songs that i would skip over um so it's it's hard for me to rank this one honestly i might give it like a six six point five maybe just for that reason that um i think it's a lot better live than than just kind of something that i might uh listen to daily what what about you yeah, I definitely one of those shows where the 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 show is better than the soundtrack, I think. And that's that's sort of hard to it's sort of hard to explain, but uh like when you see the show live, it's much better than sitting and listening to the the soundtrack in its entirety. And there are some shows where I think the soundtrack is better than the show, you know? Um so but anyway, I yeah, I think uh, I think Act Two really hurts this one. Um, I think I, I was going to give it a 6.5 as well. I don't know. I hate, I hate to bash it so much. Cause I know, like, I feel like we bashed in the Heights too much when we did it. Cause like now I like, I'll listen to in the Heights all the time. So I feel like in like a couple weeks, I'm going to be like, just listening to Hades town. I'm going to be like, why did I write this a 6.5? <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Well, that is a wrap on this episode of Broadway Overanalyzed. Thank you again for listening. Music in this episode features tracks from EJM Instrumentals and from the Hadestown original Broadway cast recording. If you liked this episode and you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, send us an email at bwayoveranalyzed at gmail.com. Also, make sure to give us a rating on Spotify and or iTunes. And we look forward to seeing you again, uh, hopefully very soon, in the next episode of Broadway Overanalyzed. I want a two, I want two, three, four. Way down, way down, way down.